My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hello, everyone. This is Pin, and I'm a venture investor at Lightspeed Ventures Partners. Welcome to my show. This is a mini series that will explore the challenges and best practices of venture building in emerging markets through conversations with leading investors and founders across India, China, and Southeast Asia. Today, I'm really excited to have Nicholas Nash, who's the managing partner and co-founder of Asia Partners. Nick you know, is someone I would consider a true veteran of the Southeast Asia tech ecosystem, having been on both sides of investing and operating table and done phenomenally at both, actually. Prior to, jo- to, to Asia Partners, Nick was the group president of uh, the C Group, um, which is the leading internet company in related global tech in 2020, right? He led the internet company on a journey from a private company to the largest U.S. IPO from Southeast Asia. Prior to that, he was a uh, uh, he was a partner at General Atlantic, where three of his investments are now multi-billion-dollar NYSE publicly traded companies. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pin. I wasn't a partner at GA. I was just a worker bee. <laughs> <laughs> I was a principal, but still, great time. All right, awesome. Thanks. Uh, you know, you've invested in Southeast Asia, you know, and, 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 you know, most notably your team invested to see during your time at GA. Um, tell us a little bit about what happened there and what stood out to you and your team. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, being uh, involved and associated with and then part of the operating team at Sea has been one of the greatest uh, and most jo- and joyful experiences of, uh, of my journey. It really all began uh, at business school. Uh, Forrest and I took a class together, uh, of all things, coincidentally, on supply chains in Asia, which ended up actually being a pretty interesting intellectual antecedent of what we ended up building with Shopee many, many years down uh, the pike. We each found our way to Singapore in different ways. He came because uh, he fell in love with a wonderful person who was getting her engineering degree across campus. She had a bond from Tomasek, so he followed her back to Singapore. I came a few years later uh, to set up the General Atlantic office back in 2011, uh, four years after graduating from school. And very quickly, uh, we, we struck up a friendship. In fact, I still remember the first lunch we had, it's probably January 2013, I'd probably been on the ground for about 18 months. And uh, it is a great, great saying in Asia. It says, uh, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. He took me out to lunch and asked for advice. You can see where this is going. Right. <laughs> and not long afterward, not long afterwards, we became shareholders in C. <laughs> Garina, as it was called at the time. And we were struck by something that was just so impressive that what Forrest had done. He had built a net income positive business on a very frugal budget. 
And I think that's a central observation that I'd love to talk more about today and hear your thoughts, Ben, which is capital productivity is the ultimate test of skill in business. It's amazing how deep you can dig into a mountain when you use megatons of explosives. But imagine building a tunnel with just a spoon, you know, Shawshank Redemption style. That's pretty incredible. And in a fun kind of way, it turns out that some of the largest businesses, the very biggest businesses in tech, about 70% of them were built on a relatively modest budget, all things considered. And that set of behaviors and mindset and skill led them to even greater heights over time. Because guess what? A successful leopard doesn't always change her spots. She's able to keep applying those great skills to build the next and the next and the next thing beyond that. So when we saw what Forrest was building and how profitable it was at such a young stage, that was a pretty strong clue that he was a truly gifted, gifted entrepreneur. Interesting. And then you kind of switch side to join him. What was the thinking behind that thinking? Well, we had a very clear culture at General Atlantic. You know, to use the military metaphor, when when the drill sergeant says jump, your only response is how high, sir? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And when he asked, took me out to lunch again. Maybe I took him out to lunch the first time, and he took me out the second time. I don't know. In terms of the bookends of this, <laughs> but we went out to lunch in December two thousand fourteen, and uh, I was about to move back to New York with General Atlantic. Uh, next kind of uh, you know punch on the ticket, so to speak, in, in a hopefully a long term career there. And he said, look, I'd like to invite you to come join us as the group president of the company. I remember going home and asking my wife what she thought. And in not so many words, I think she told me, you idiot, why don't you accept on the spot? Be decisive. <laughs> but no, I mean, at General Atlantic, the culture was when an entrepreneur asks for help, you, 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 everything gets put on hold. The entrepreneur is the customer. The mm-hmm. entrepreneur is the person doing the hard work. The entrepreneur is going through a world that often does few favors to people trying out new things or building their own business, bumping up against lots of incumbents. So when the entrepreneur asks for help, there is only one answer. It's how high, sir. That's a great story. And your wife must be really proud of her decision. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, she, I have to be perfectly honest. In our family, she's the real entrepreneur. Both are part of the Kaufman program. She's Kaufman 23. And has gotten so much value out of it. So just a big shout out to Jeff Harback and Phil Wickham and the whole gang, you know, Jason Green. What you have created is something very, very special. And we're really grateful to be part of it. Yeah, I'll detail that as well. Bring us behind the curtains about what you learned and saw during your time at sea. Like, what do you think from the insider now that you're over there, right? Like, what do you think made that company a success? Gosh, you know, it's interesting to talk about it in, in hindsight. Capital productivity is a big part of it. But see, capital productivity in some ways is the result, not the cause, right? It's almost like saying you had a good report card come yeah. June or come December. But that doesn't really explain how you got to that exactly. point. The, one of the most important aspects of our culture, and I credit Forrest immeasurably for this, is we always felt that we were a very poor company. Whenever anybody thought that we had a big budget to spend, that person was very clearly spoken to and said, look, we really don't. Mm-hmm. We have a bunch of different mouths to feed inside the organization. We're going to distinguish ourselves based on the skill and the creativity with the way we do things. And that manifested in so many interesting ways. And you look at Shopee. Shopee, I always say there's five ways to grow an e-commerce business. And Shopee was really creative 
about using the most efficient of those five ways. Specifically, you can subsidize the product. You can run tons and tons of TV advertisements and outdoor billboards. You can do tons and tons and tons of online marketing. And then you can also provide a voucher for shipping. Now, why is shipping the elegant solution? Well, go no further than Jeff Bezos with Amazon Prime. He learned very early on that the customer is willing to pay full price for the product as long as the shipping doesn't become the frictional point. Mm. Wow, that's super interesting. It's almost like saying people are willing to go to Vivo City when there isn't a sale, but they don't want to pay for parking, right? The nickeling and diming shouldn't happen on the small things like the parking, right? They're more willing to go buy a very, very nice shirt or home item or, or whatever. And that was brilliant because by providing a targeted way to sort of make the, the, the final cart transaction not get abandoned, you were encouraging behavior. You were encouraging repeated behavior. And once people had already bought a bunch of different items, they got more comfortable. There was less of a need to do that. In fact, one of the most elegant things about e-commerce as an industry, it's a really fun intellectual kind of case question when you're interviewing somebody mm-hmm. for, for a job. I'm going to use some round numbers, but the numbers might be different country by country. If you have heretofore provided free shipping above $15 basket, and you suddenly say, now it's going to be free shipping above 20 pin, what happens? What do you think? Free shipping used to be above 15 a basket. Now it's above 20 a basket. What's going to happen to the number of items you sell in the 10 to 15 zone? the 15 to 20 zone and the 20 plus zone. What's your answer? It's just all go up because people are habituated to the free shipping. Well, hold on a second, but, but, but take, it, take it step by step. So free shipping above 15, that was last month. This okay. month, free shipping above 20. Right. All right. So what is going to happen to the number of items you sell between 15 and 20? Is it going to go up or go down? It will go up. Would it? Because now free shipping is above 20. Oh, the, the, the 15 to 20 will go down and then, yes. right, exactly. And what happens to 20 plus? Does that go up or down? It goes up. And what happens from 10 to 15? Or, or yeah. modest change. I mean, yeah. nothing really, no, no yeah, action is happening over yeah. there, right? I mean, as it is, you weren't getting free shipping for that anyway. You're still not right. getting free shipping for it. Sure. Okay, so be it. What happens to your average sales price, meaning your average basket size? 10 to 15 goes down in number, but 20 goes up. Your average basket size, if you do this the right way in a, in a very elegant way, should go up, at least after a week or two of equilibration. So what have you done? It's what behavioral economists would call nudging. nudging. You've nudged them. Exactly. And you do this five times in a row, and pretty soon, now free shipping is above 30. Mm. And you can do this at different moments in time. You could adjust it for singles day. You could do it in different countries. Wow. Now. Imagine you hadn't gone down that path at all. You went down the path of just tons and tons of discounts to the product. Guess what? You start pulling that back. Elasticity is your enemy, not your friend. Mm. So there's some very elegant things you can do. And these things, I would say, nothing sharpens the minds more like frugality. (laughs) Right? A thick wallet is inebriation for the entrepreneurial mind. And a thin wallet is a great way to have a clear head. Right. That's such a great example. And for those, I guess, found or 
uh, I'd say investors thinking about moving to an operating role, what did you have to learn or unlearn coming from then the investment side to the C group? Well, I think a lot of people that have grown up in the professional services environment develop what I would call, and forgive me if this is going to sound a little unkind, it's not meant to be, but it's meant to be real. Yeah, it meant to be real. They, they develop premature gravitas. Mm. Why? Because when you're selling your ideas and you're selling your firm at a, let's call it what it is, a relatively high billing rate, you know, the expectation internally, if not so much externally, is that there has to be a certain demeanor, a certain tone, a certain stylistic aspect. But I have often felt that there's often a trade-off between gravitas and substance. Not always, not always. But when you see a Silicon Valley wearing turtlenecks and T-shirts, sometimes it's a reflection not just of being counterculture, mm. but of actually trying to focus a lot more on the substance. Mm. Let the product speak for itself or let the results speak for themselves <laughs> a little bit more than the words speaking for themselves. Right, right. And I think one of the most important things that I always recommend people in professional services to do is to go work in a real operating company. Because what you unlearn a little bit are some of the habits of speech, some of the habits of interpersonal conduct and interaction, and you begin to be judged by not how you talk, but what you do. It's super important, actually. Mm. Later on, you can pick up some of those rhetorical skills again, perhaps, yeah. or perhaps not. Perhaps not. Actually. Perhaps not, but maybe you know, some of them have a value and a purpose in, in moving groups, leading groups and whatnot. But if you can combine the oratorical skills of professional mm. services with the substantive doing skills of operations, boy, that's a neat combination. Mm. That's a powerful chemical reaction. I'm always puzzled how few people make that leap. A lot of people, when you really scratch behind the surface, and again, I'm going to be very blunt in saying this, and forgive me if I'm hurting some people's feelings or coming across in maybe a little bit of a, a kind of a preachy kind of way. A lot of people that go through the professional services world, including investing, by the way, they build up a certain fixed cost base in their life, their home, their vacations, their whatever it is that adds up. And a lot of people in operations are, are very thoughtful about keeping a very low fixed cost base in their life, knowing that what they're playing for is long-term value creation. And in a funny sort of way, the apartments that people have when you're in operations are often not quite as large and nice as the apartments you'd have when you're in banking, you're consulting, you're investing in your 20s and 30s, they often flip in your 40s and 50s. <laughs> <laughs> they just get promoted to the landed property. <laughs> well, and that's not the measure of a life lived. Yeah, that's not the that measure of the worth you've right. created. It is a measure, though, of what a great historian, Carol Quigley, used to call future preference. Mm. There's a desire to save now for perhaps having the ability to do more in the future. Yeah. And I think in many ways, you learn future preference when you go into operations, which I think is very, very important. Excellent. So I couldn't recommend it more. And as we were chatting about it at the beginning of our call before we began the recording, in our firm, no one makes partner, no one makes managing director, no one even makes VP or director until they've already spent a number of years in an operating role. We are absolutely firm about that. There's no deviation from that in our culture because you have to have been in an operating role to understand what, what you and I have experienced. You were a grad pin. What a great experience exactly. to do that. Like, I, mean, I often tell people that experience is the best training ground for me to be an investor. 
I totally, totally agree. There's only one school worth going to in this world with all great respect to people that have, you know, worked hard to get into some special schools. Yeah. It's the school of hard knocks. <laughs> I'd be waiting for someone to have an SOHK t-shirt. I, yeah. I'd, I'd probably wear it every day. <laughs> awesome. Uh, we're going to move on to the next question. Many, you know, I guess, high caliber team, well-funded teams from all over the world, mostly, uh, have tried and failed to crack Southeast Asia. What do they overlook about entering or building for Southeast Asia? In a weird kind of way, they overlook Southeast Asia, right? You know, every part of the world's got its flyover states. Mm. Southeast Asia has been Asia's flyover state for a long time. Mm. You know, people tend to fly over it rather than getting into the details of it. All right, I'm going to play a fun game with you. I call it the AQ test. Now, you know about EQ. What's EQ, Pin? Yeah, emotional caution. What's IQ? Intelligence caution. What's AQ? Affection caution? No, the ASEAN quotient. (laughs) So I am going to rattle off for you something very fun. And I used to do this at conferences when there were such a thing as conferences uh, before COVID. So this is the kind of fun pin. This is something called the AQ test. Right. It's fun and not embarrassing for me. It may very well be. Okay. That's being authentic in front of your listeners, Ken. That is so. <laughs> a very nice way to put this. <laughs> leadership through vulnerability. <laughs> this is entirely unscripted. Pin has no idea what's about to befall her. <laughs> this is. Do not try this at home, guys. Going on a live podcast and getting. All right, dear friends at home. This is, this is highly, highly career limiting. And Pin's- <laughs> yeah, no, you're going to do great. You're going to do great. I'm about to show Pin the 25 largest cities of Southeast Asia. Mm. She was asking the question what do maybe operators or investors or maybe folks coming in from abroad to launch businesses here, what do they not get about Southeast Asia? And my answer was what they don't get about Southeast Asia is Southeast Asia. So, have you been to Manila, Pin? Okay, so that's one point. We're going to keep track. Audience, just keep, keep track with this as well. All right. Have you been to Jakarta? Um, I have. Have you been to Bangkok? Of course I have. I'm from Bangkok. One would think. One would think. This is the are you awake question. <laughs> have you been to Ho Chi Minh City? I have. Have you been to Kuala Lumpur? Yes. Very good. Have you been to Singapore? Yes. One would think. You're in there right now. Yeah. Have you been to Yangon? Yes. I have been to Have Yangon. you been to Hanoi? Yes, I've been to Hanoi. So, so far, PIN is 848 so far. A true Not Southeast PIN. Asian investor. True Southeast Asian investor. Now, look, we're going to make it a little harder now. This is one of those, like, the GMAT is an adaptive yeah. test. <laughs> it just got past the first part. <laughs> have you been to Bekasi? I have Bekasi. Bekasi. Very good. Nine for nine. Have you been to Surabaya? No, I haven't. Uh-oh. <laughs> so nine for nine is very impressed with us. Okay, so far, keep keep count. Keep counting yeah. your end. Have you been to Depok? I have. I have been to Depok. Very good. <laughs> Depok is the same size as Manchester. It just happens yeah. to have grown 22 times in yeah. the last 60 years. Yeah. How's that for a cagger? No, have you been to Bandung? No, I haven't. Okay, I haven't. Bandung. Yeah. Keep count. Tangerang. No, I haven't. Tangerang. Tangerang is the size of Baltimore. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. Maidan. Yes, I have a friend from there. Very good. Yeah. Phnom Penh. Yes, I have Phnom Penh. Okay. Semarang. No, I haven't. Okay. Davao City. Yes, I have. 
Wow, impressive. Uh-huh. I'm just Palembang. No, I haven't. Okay. Kanto in Vietnam. No, I haven't. Kanto is the size of Stockholm. It's grown 25 times uh-huh. in the past 60 years. Yeah. Makassar. Makassar. No, I haven't. Okay. I Batam. Yes. Okay, great. Batam has grown 29 times. It's larger than Munich. It's mm. a city right now. Mm-hmm. Mandalay. Yes, I have. Wow, impressive. Chonburi. <laughs> yes, I have. Samuth Prakan. Uh, yes, I have, but not much. Have, right? Yeah, Even, but it's, yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not common. Samuth Prakan is the same size as Prague. It's grown mm-hmm. fifty-nine times mm-hmm. in sixty mm-hmm. years. That's I mean, literally almost as many times as the number of years. Yeah. Haiphong. No, I haven't. Haiphong, I haven't. So, what's your total number, Pin? Less than twenty. Almost hitting twenty. Hopefully. You are one of the highest scores I have ever heard. There was only one person I've ever seen that got to like 22 or 23. Okay. There's an audience of about 600 people, and I asked him to stand up, and I said, so, sir, how many years has it been since you retired from MI6? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever get to meet Pierce Brosnan? Yeah. <laughs> you must have. Is he really that tall? <laughs> no, James Bond's cast. Exactly. Double O were you. Yeah. <laughs> Double O eight is very auspicious, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, this is super awesome. But this yeah. is but you, you are super awesome, Pin. I mean, yeah. you've been to more than almost anybody else I've met. Yeah. And that, I think, speaks to your authenticity with the region. Now, it isn't just about going there, buying, you know, the Hard Rock T-shirt and coming sure. back. Yeah, It's about exploring. actually having a friend there, mm-hmm. staying in touch with people there, understanding a little bit about what makes that wonderful city tick. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different. I mean, Samut Prakana is different than Bangkok. Yeah. yeah. Different vibe, right? Different vibe, different kind of culture. Great. Learn about that. Understand it. People who make that effort flourish in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. Because Southeast Asia has a very great warmth yeah. to those who show an interest in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And they're so different. It's what you're saying. And if you don't 100%. experience it for yourself, it's really hard to go for it. A hundred percent. I think of Southeast Asia as the equivalent of the American Midwest. Mm-hmm. If you show up there just for the Iowa caucus, they're going to know you're a fake. Yeah. If you like having corn dogs and hanging around and having the barbecues, you will be warmly embraced. You're right. <laughs> and it's the shoppies and the grabs and the many others, the red doorses, the Carsons, the snap ass, yeah. the SCIs that do such a great job of that. Yeah. And so what's their secret sauce? We've listed a really, really long list of companies which are, you know, very proficient in building for Southeast Asia. What do you think is their secret sauce? It's the green curry. It's the green curry. <laughs> They are made to eat green curry every day. <laughs> it's not the red curry. It's not the red curry. You know, the curry. Come on, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The secret sauce is humility. See, at the end of the day, what is business? Business is people doing useful things for other people. And depending on how useful it is, and depending on how nice they are and professional they are about it, the customer is willing to get them, let them have a little bit more gross margin. Yeah. See, at the end of the day, gross profit or the percentage of your revenue that's gross margin is the single best sign. I think it's an even more useful net promoter score than net promoter score in some ways. Because it means that people are really happy to let you do something for them that's beneficial and useful. 
So if you immerse yourself in the culture, you show great respect to mm-hmm. South, the mm-hmm. real Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. then you can't help but have your customers be your coaches. Yeah. And then they'll pay you for it. Yeah. Now, a great coach still requires the player to work hard. Yeah. yeah. But it's a lot easier to win on the pitch if the coach is rooting for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is true. Uh, now that you're back in the investing world, tell us a little bit more about the gap that you're trying to fill in Southeast Asia with Asia partners. Well, now that we've raised our fund, we've stopped talking about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll skip this question. <laughs> what gap? <laughs> no, I'm we, we love talking about it. The, 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 the really interesting thing about financial services, broadly speaking, is you'd think that something as fungible as a bot or a dong or a dollar ought to basically flow wherever it's needed. Mm. You know, it's almost like the postal service. If the letter's got to go there, the letter will go there. But in a funny kind of way, there is topography in financial services. There are valleys and there are mountains. And they're often quite independent of the actual demand profile or latent demand profile. There's a bunch of reasons for that. But the analogy that we love the best is, you know, you know that feeling of going to the kitchen, you fish out that little plastic ice cube tray that comes stand with every freezer, mm-hmm. you stick it under the sink, and that blast of water hits one of those cube holes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, one of them gets overfilled and the rest of them get underfilled. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a little bit of how financial services work. The further you weigh the further away you are from where people's attention is focused, you know, the, the proverbial eye of Sauron in the yeah. movies, <laughs> the less capital you're gonna get. And for many, many years, Southeast Asia has been a quiet suburban cul-de-sac, a country road, mm. as opposed to the main ECP or the main I-95 using the American analogy of capital. What does that mean? It's been, that's a great time to raise capital for startups in China right now. Yeah. In, fact, in our analysis, at almost every stage, one to 20 checks, 20 to 100 checks, 100 plus, that was up double digits in 2020 versus 2019. And 2021 is going to be a pretty good year as well. Mm-hmm. However, in Southeast Asia, if you wanted to raise a one to $20 million check, you had just about as much success as you did in 19 and 20. And if you wanted to raise a really big check, you probably had a bit more success in 20 than 19. But if you wanted to raise a mid-sized check, it was actually harder Mm. in 2020 than it was in 2019. That's the descriptive, factual fact. Why is maybe the more interesting question. There's three factors that we would guess at, but this is an imperfect science. I mean, we can sort of observe a fact, but wonder why is the case. Mm -hmm. But the fact is the fact. Number one. It's a lot easier to write a $3 million check over four Zoom calls than it is to write a $30 million check over eight Zoom calls. You need more of a face-to-face connectivity for those larger checks. And in a funny kind of way, once the company is raising $300 million, these are getting close enough to an IPO or they've been validated enough or they're close enough to profitability. In a weird kind of way, the bar also lessens a little bit. Mm. You know, people will do their DD very quickly in a company that's about to go public and they get a couple of weeks of work on it, read a prospectus and they're done. In that middle zone, you've kind of reached a point where you need a lot of work, a lot of face-to-face, and you got to look them in the eye in order to build a relationship. And by the way, they want to look you in the eye as the investor. They want to make sure that this investor is not going to, you know, be misaligned with how they're trying to build something very beautiful uh, mm. to leave as their legacy, as their life work. That's part of it. COVID didn't help, unfortunately. The other aspect, though, I think is actually about risk. If you're an investor that wants to write a hundred 
$2 million checks over a five to 10 year period of time across a couple of funds, there's actually a lot of LPs that want to back that play. Mm. And if you're an investor that wants to write four or five really big checks out of a global fund, but in Southeast Asia, a lot of LPs want to back that play. But there actually haven't been historically that many LPs that want to back a mid-sized, high-conviction strategy. Because you write a 35 to a $50 million check in Southeast Asia, that takes a degree of, shall we say, courage. And we're not putting ourselves on any sort of pedestal here. We think it's the right thing to do, but I wouldn't call us any more courageous than the average, yeah. you know, terrific investor. Yeah. But it takes a certain degree of conviction and yeah. courage. And sort of, you know, um, the courage of one's convictions and beliefs, I think, is important. That that is an impeding factor. The final aspect is kind of interesting. A historical misperception grounded in a truth. Those are the most dangerous ones. Mm. That Southeast Asia is too fragmented to ever be a real market. Everybody that had that view and didn't buy C at 15 doesn't own C now at 280. <laughs> or who bought Gra didn't true. buy Grab or yeah. didn't buy Lazada oh. or whatever, Red Doors or yeah. whatever the case may be. But actually, I think what's very interesting is the perception of a region being fragmented uh, for all sorts of different reasons is, is changing now to a reality of the region being integratable mm. in the same way that Western and Central Europe is integratable. Uh, look at Unilever. Look at Nestle. Mm. Look at Airbus. I mean, these are countries that used to be, you know, flinging chemical gas at each other in the 1918. 17, yet now they're just routinely making stuff as a team, you know? I mean, all, all we're missing in Southeast Asia is our version of the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> right? Because actually the region is coming together. Pre-COVID, yeah. look at the 10 most frequent daily flights, inter-country, international flights, three or four of them globally, the top 10 were in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Now, that's part of the fact that we don't have railroads here. If we had railroads, there wouldn't be that many flights. Sure. But still, I mean, the region has really come together in a very, very special, authentic kind of way. Awesome. And that, I think, is really cool to see. And it's still a misperceived fact that creates a little bit of an opportunity for entrepreneurs as well. The last thing I'll share is that while a gap is, is not great, a gap in capital does help the entrepreneur who does raise capital. Mm. Because why do gross margins compress? Part of it is the customer doesn't think you're doing a great job. A competition as well, an over sort of saturation. Remember how in 1983, Phil Wickham loves telling me the story. He's right. There were 200 plus Winchester hard drive companies funded, 83, 84. That coalesced into basically three players at the end of the day over yeah. 40 years. Too much value uh, destroyed. Remember the Groupon yeah. Wars of 2010, mm -hmm. 11, and 12 in China and Southeast Asia? How many are left? Very few, very few. But in an environment where there's maybe you know, four companies or five companies that get a Series C check, even two or three, it lets every company maybe have a little bit more space to kind of find their own inner uniqueness mm. and, and journey and path. Mm. Mm. That's awesome. Well, just one last question for me before we get into the, the quick fire rounds. Um, there's what, a fire round? Yeah, there's a fire round. Now I put you on a spot. Man. I got to start reading the email. I got to start reading the email uh, but before that, I wanted to also just think about, uh, you know, have you shared a little bit about how have your investment philosophy changed and maybe weaving into that, like, what do you, you know, how do you coach your investment team in terms of, you know, investing philosophy? I'm not sure I coach them. I think they coach me. <laughs> <laughs> They're wonderful. And we're so fortunate to have a Thai, yeah. Kun Brook, yeah. a Vietnamese, an Indonesian, a Singaporean. And three of our LPs are three of the most prominent families of the Philippines. 
and also one of the most prominent families of Taiwan. So in what we always very respectfully and warmly call Greater Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. we feel so, so grateful mm-hmm. to have that kind of coverage. One of our first investments is one of the largest companies of uh, Malaysia, Carson. So really feel grateful for the the ASEAN-ness of our team. And I, I wake up every day realizing how little I still know. <laughs> I'm Asian, but grew up, you know, not in Asia. Right. So, and I'm here in the middle of my life. So yeah. very much that. But one of the things I think we're, we really feel is kind of special as well, maybe not special, maybe the wrong one. I don't know what it is. We enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Is as a young firm, we're, we're creating a lot of internal, maybe knowledge on a first principles basis. Mm-hmm. We have this fun tradition we do where every Monday we have a deal I see. That's when I see it. Every Thursday we have a thematic I see. Mm-hmm. And we have multi episode memos, almost like a story arc. Right. So we call them chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and anybody can write them. So okay. somebody can kick off chapter one on a topic, like what does a network effect really mean? Or how do we want to balance risk and reward? And anybody else, you know, just first come, first serve can write the next chapter. Mm-hmm. So it becomes almost the thesis version of a chain letter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, and it's really cool, actually, where everybody is teaching each other based on things they're thinking about a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think that's We've tried to use the time we've had that we're not in airplanes this past year and a half yeah. to work a little bit on some of that IP. And I think an organization that continually relishes in, in sort of creating IP and mm-hmm. knowledge, mm-hmm. in part just by teaching it to ourselves, mm-hmm. is uh, it's fun because I think we're still doing you know foundational stuff. But on, on that edifice, we hope to be able to build a second and third and fourth story over time. Right. That's an important part of our culture. We really love it. Right. Really love it's, it. That's awesome. Love to read some of these IPs one day. Well, come work for us. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> we'll come to the tail end of this. Three last final quick question for you. First, what makes a great VC? Humility. What advice would you have for your audience of investors or innovators? Read. Read. How do you stay sharp? What book, podcast, or blog inspire you? Oh, boy. I, uh, I, I stay sharp by learning from my colleagues. Um, I, I try to read as much as I can. Having two small kids, it means I'm, I'm reading a lot of How to Train Your Dragon. And, uh, and um, Andy and Terry in the 13-story treehouse, a lot of these things. But, but all that said, we actually began Charlie the Charlie Chocolate Factory last night, which is one of the great, great stories of all time. It is. Um, but no, I think um, reading, reading, one thing that I've discovered is kind of a fun hack reading books about the world and about industries and companies written by journalists, mm. I think is so interesting because a journalist will often cover a story for a year or two and then summarize all the pieces and how they fit together mm. in a book. Mm. And some of the best books about the tech industry have been books written by journalists about a moment in time. Yeah. I really, I relish those a lot. Yeah. Those are great, great insights. Awesome, Nick. Thank you so much for you know, sharing your experience and insights with the audience today, even, you know, me being in Southeast Asia for as long as I have been and learned so much from you. So thank well, you're you. very, very kind. Cup and crop, cup and crop. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows.